talking to Jayla about, you know, the first time that I felt different um, and that, you know, that I noticed that my color was an issue um, for, for people in the third grade after a little boy, um, we were standing in line and, uh, you know, the teacher was kind of taking kids one by one up to the water fountain and the little boy behind me, I went up, took a drink. He would not move. He wouldn't go take a drink. And he told the teacher he didn't want my color to rub off on him. And I remember thinking, well, dang, I didn't know I could do that. Um, but I also, I, it was like the first time that I was like, but you're acting like that's, you know, like, what is, well, I don't understand. What does that mean? And so um, I remember I said to Jayla, I was like, 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 what would you, like, what would you do in that situation or what, you know? And Jayla was like, well, like, well, really mommy, but like, like, so what? Like, so what if his skin turns the same color as yours? Like, what's the big deal? And I was like, yeah. And this was her at like eight years old, right? She's well, what's wrong with that? Well, so what if it did? Like, what's the, what, I don't understand why he would be so upset about it. And as a grown adult, I was like, oh yeah. Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of Reclaiming Social Justice, a podcast that seeks to read the signs of the times through the lens of Catholic social teaching and rediscover our call to work for a more loving society. My name is Danny and I'm the coordinator of social justice at St. Anthony Catholic Church in Tigard, Oregon and the host of the show. If you're a fan of the show, I hope that you subscribe wherever you like to get your podcasts. If you're a fellow St. Anthony parishioner, remember you can find this show at satiger.org forward slash reclaiming SJ. Wherever you choose to listen, you can expect new episodes on the last Wednesday of every month. You can hit me up with your comments, questions, and suggestions at reclaimingsj at gmail.com. You can also leave me your feedback by completing the short form link at the bottom of the show notes. All right, so with that, let's look at what we got on deck for today's show. All right, this is the first of three episodes of a mini-series on social justice in Catholic educational institutions. Uh, the first two guests of this mini-series actually work in local Catholic high schools here in Oregon, and our third guest works at Mount Angel Seminary, helping form our future priest. So uh, the very first guest today, though, is Melissa Lowry. Melissa was the first black woman to work as the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Jesuit High School and is currently the director of equity and community engagement at Central Catholic High School here in Portland. Her career in DEI at Catholic institutions was sparked by the creation of a documentary about her life growing up as a black girl in West Lynn, Oregon. Our conversation goes into what inspired her to create that documentary about her life and how that led to the social justice work she now does with students. But before that, let's go to today's word of the day. Today's word of the day is... Advocacy. Unlike previous episodes... I didn't choose this word because it connects to the guest's story or uh, he or she mentioned it in our conversation. Rather, I chose it because I've already spotlighted uh, two other tools for creating social change, which in, in previous episodes, which are community organizing and activism. And uh, I see advocacy as another tool for doing that social justice work and specifically applying the principles and living the values of our Catholic social teaching. So what is advocacy? Uh, You know, this word is often used uh, synonymously with activism and organizing. All these words are kind of mixed up. So let's let's get clear. Let's get on the same page about what we mean by advocacy. Advocacy is the act or process of bringing the realities of our brothers and sisters facing injustice throughout the world to those who hold positions of power in our government. In other words, our elected officials, our representatives, our legislators. More specifically, advocacy involves using these stories to influence their position on a relevant cause or a legislative proposal. Examples of this include, but are not limited to, writing an email, a letter, making a phone call, or meeting in person with such elected officials. 
for example, right now in, in Oregon, we're in the legislative season. Um, and there's a number of bills that are important to us as Catholics. And we can uh, be the voice of the voiceless and tell our representatives who are analyzing these bills why we think they should support them or oppose them uh, according to our Catholic values. So why should Catholics do this, though? Why should they practice advocacy? As the U.S. bishops put it in their letter, Economic Justice for All, as individuals, all citizens have the duty to assist the poor through acts of charity and personal commitment. But private charity and voluntary action are not sufficient. We also carry out our moral responsibility to assist and empower the poor by working collectively through government to establish just and effective public policies. The Catechism of the Catholic Church reinforces this duty we have as citizens and as a faithful body to work with government and civil authority for justice and solidarity, work that sometimes demands advocacy. For example, in paragraph 2238, the Catechism says that citizens have the right and at times the duty to voice their just criticisms of that which seems harmful to the dignity of persons and to the good of the community. So that's in a nutshell what advocacy is. And I think it's really important that we become aware of this practice because it's a really concrete way to put our Catholic social teaching into action. So that's that. Question for you all. Have you done advocacy before? What does that look like? What strategies have you employed? What was that experience like? Let me know. I've highlighted community organizing and activism as well. Let me know what your experience with those um, tools have been. Shoot me a message. All right, so let's get to my conversation with Melissa Lowry now. Enjoy. So I'm here on Reclaiming Social Justice podcast with Melissa Lowry, who is the Director of Equity and Community Engagement for Central Catholic High School here in uh, in Oregon. And we're going to talk about, uh, you know, her experience working in, in, a, in a Catholic setting on social justice and specifically equity work um, with, with youth. Um, but before we jump into that, um, I'm going to open us up in a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to um, meet one of my sisters in, in Christ and learn about her, her background and how you've worked in her life to um, build bridges, right? Build bridges of, of unity um, and, and empowerment, right? I'm really excited to dive into her particular story that I already have a sense uh, resonates with my own. So I look forward to that. So I ask you just to bless this conversation that we're about to have and may everything be for your greater glory. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, so welcome, Melissa, to the podcast. And um, as I always do with guests, I'd like to just start with, you know, who, who you are, and specifically the question I always like to ask, you know, um, how, who or what first taught you to live a life of faith, of, of social justice, of equity, like, just kind of tell me your story as it relates to those themes. My mother was Buddhist, but also a very active member in the community. She was part of the original um, Black Panther Party um, um, in Portland. Um, uh, you know, helped to start the BSU at, at Portland State University. So she was um, very active in um, uh, uh, you know community, um, social justice, um, you know, understanding systems of oppression um, and policy and all of those things. So we grew up in a very um, 
in a in a space and community that was you know active in in all things um and um so that was that was another example um for me that i really you know and it wasn't like we would have these sit down conversations about big topics around social justice or um different you know systemic racism or any of those things so we kind of grew up in this um multicultural environment so she uh was the director of a um multicultural performing arts center in portland this community was full of like a plethora of diversity um you know, race, racially, culturally, religion, um, uh, uh, ability, like all of the things um, were made up this community. And so for me, that instilled in me um, this deep sense of community that just is still with me and, and is a part of my work to till this to this day. How I show up, how I build relationships, the importance of relationships to me. Um, and that that isn't that doesn't mean I'm trying to be everybody's best friend. Um, but having some kind of a connection to the people that I see every day, that I talk to every day, um, just how important that is in establishing community and relationship um, and how that um, also is a tool and can be um, extremely important, especially when it comes to social justice issues um, and um, the work um, that that needs to be done and the work that, that we do um, is, is really, really um, important and something that for me, I, I saw it and I watched it and I experienced how how big and how impactful a community can be. You so you were born right in Oregon, um, and it's it's my I read your bio and you spent some time in, in California, but spent most of your time here in Oregon and uh, in the suburbs in West Lynn. And this is the part where I, I was like, oh, I I I didn't know this about you before I kind of stumbled upon you, but when I read this, I was like, oh my, this relates to my story because like I. Um, I was born in California, in Los Angeles, and we moved here to uh, a suburb, Tualatin, Oregon, um, when I was like seven or eight. Um, and so I've spent the majority of my my life in, you know, white suburbia. Um, so um, you eventually, uh, you, you sound like you're a creative person and you, uh, you know, made this documentary about your life and growing up as a as a black girl in Westland, Oregon. Tell me about that. Like what inspired you to, to create this documentary about your life? Uh, my children. Um, I have two daughters, um, Jayla and Shay, and they, um, you know, I, we, like you said, we lived in, in California for, um, for a while and, and our children were born there. Um, and then we moved back here to Oregon when they were one and, and two, one and three, I think. Um, and when we decided to move back, um, we needed to be close to Pacific University where my husband was working. Um, and Hillsborough ended up being the place, right? We were, you know, we still had family that lived in Portland. And so we weren't too far from them, but we wanted to be close to work. Um, and Hillsborough, um, uh, is majority made up, uh, white and, um, and Hispanic community. And so where my children went to school, um, there were very few black kids. Right. And so my daughter, when she was about, um, I don't know, maybe six or seven, you know, just said, mommy, how come I'm the only brown person in my class? She paused and she said, and I'm the only brown person that doesn't speak Spanish. And I just was like, oh, yeah, about that. Right. Um, and she she said, you know, a girl did something with my hair and how my hair is different. And and so to me, that just it I had this rush of um, 
uh, feelings and just old stuff come up from my own. So she asked me and said, you know, um, why am I the only brown kid in my class that doesn't speak Spanish? This girl is saying that my hair is different. Um, and I just, I felt this rush of just, you know, emotion and just old feelings just kind of come up and it, it surprised me. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, like she's having, she's, oh my gosh, she's having, she's having the same experiences that I was having, you know. And up to that point, you hadn't really kind of um, shared that with her? No, not with her. Um, you know, growing up in West Lynn, you know, I, I was one of very few. I had, had my very first, one of my first memories growing, you know, moving to West Lynn um, at like three or four. My mom says I was, I, I don't think I was that young, but um, I met my very, my, the very first friend that I ever met in West Lynn was another little black girl, my friend Mick, who's in the film. Um, and so her and I, we grew up, you know, went all the way through 12th grade together, even though we, you know, we ended up having different friend groups and kind of not hanging out as much as we wanted to, but we always had this really strong bond and connection. And we would always talk about our experiences. So I had, luckily, I was fortunate to have somebody that understood what I was going through, but it was just one person and she was the same age as me. And it was, you know, and we were just trying to navigate our being the only one and, and all of the things, the stereotypes and all of that. And so when Jayla shared what she was experiencing, um, and it wasn't that I hadn't, I had blocked out or anything. I just, you know, when I left and graduated from Westland, that was it. I was out. I was like, I ain't never coming back, you know, bye, see ya, you know, and that was it. Um, so we had a really good talk, you know, and I just said, well, because of where we live, you might be the only one in your class and daddy might be the only one at work and I might be the only one at the grocery store or, you know, wherever the case is, that's based off where we live, but it doesn't, it doesn't um, diminish who you are, right? Like you, you are a proud young black girl and you are Jayla and you be the best Jayla you can be. And um, it's going to be hard and it's not going to be easy. Um, but we had to have some, you know, we had to have that conversation and acknowledging that, she, that, you know, somebody calling her out for being different up until that point, she's like, I'm like, I'm, you know, like a lot of children, right? You don't realize you're different until somebody calls you out or points out what's different about you. And for a lot of black girls, initially it's our hair. I know I, you know, I, I thought I was born with braids. My mom had my hair in braids for so long and I would get teased, you know, at school about them. Um, so, and I was also at the time going to Pacific University um, and I was majoring in media and wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to, um, to do specifically, but I took my first documentary class and then I was kind of hooked. And then that was it. I was like, oh my gosh. So we had the conversation. I spent a couple of days really reflecting on what those feelings were that were coming up for me. Um, and it was a lot of anger. You know, I was still really angry about, um, you know, some of the stuff I experienced and not having, you know, adults that had support for kids of color that were, you know, um, that were at school. Um, so I thought I just learned this, this skill of telling a story and I can tell it how I want and I can talk to whoever I want. And so I thought I'm going to tell this story. And so I Googled you know, I thought, well, some, I'm sure somebody else has already shared the story and have been talking about it. So I Googled, I put in like, I don't know, um, uh, few black people in a white community or something, something random like that. And like hardly anything popped up. I think there was one book by, um, a black woman author who, um, had talked a little bit about her experience growing up in a suburb. Um, or her family buying being the first home, um, you know, in a white neighborhood. Um, and I thought, okay. And I looked and there was like nothing else. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, I got to tell the story. Like, I got to talk about this. There's no way myself or me could be the only ones, right? And so um, I then I was like, black. I'm a black girl in suburbia. And that's just kind of where it went. And I called my mentor. Um, and I just said, 
I have this idea for a film that I, I, I really am like, it's, it's like burning me up. I need to like do this. I don't know what it's going to look like. I had never made a film before. Um, I literally had just graduated from college in my thirties. I have two babies. I'm married. I got, you know, I'm an, I'm an adult (laughs) and here I am trying to take on this project and this new thing. But I had this, like, you know, God was really speaking to me, like, you're doing this. I know you don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to do it. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to do it. Let's, let's, let's roll, you know? So we, I started the process of, you know, um, finding my resources, which was something my mom, um, had always talked to us, like, you know, use your resources. If somebody says, Hey, call me, if you're interested, if you need some help or support with this, give me a call or, you know, if you need something, let me know. And so I started, you know, asking people and telling people about what I want to do. And they're like, all right, well, call me. And I'm like, I'm going to, so don't, you know, and so, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I just, um, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any equipment, like literally starting from scratch. Um, and, uh, got a little crew together at Pacific. This, my, my, the school at the time, they were so supportive and they were like, all right, you got, you know, they had equipment, they had places to shoot. They had, you know, so, um, and then I started a Kickstarter, which at the time had just started itself. Um, and so we made a little video and I would, I think we had a goal to raise money. Uh, we put some random number up there because we didn't think we would even get anything at all, but we put up like at something like $10,400 and 76 cents, like something super random. And then within maybe like two days, I think we had raised like $3,000. And I was like, whoa, what? And we started getting comments from people that were like, oh my gosh, I've been waiting for somebody to tell this story. And one woman had donated $1,000, didn't even know me. And I reached out to her and it was a white woman that was doing equity work at the time. And, you know, said, I, I know this is, I know this story is true. I know it exists. Um, and I, I don't have really have a thousand dollars to give, but I know that like, this needs to be, you need to do this. So that even further, right. Validated, like, okay, we're doing this again. I'm just going to throw, I'm going to just let God take the wheel and just, you know, and honestly, over the period of about five years, we created this film. Um, and I, it's still kind of, I'm a little boggled still about how, (laughs) (laughs) Um, we were, I was able to manage, you know, um, and getting it done and all of the people that, you know, that were in it, that were part of it, that helped, like, just, it was all really organic. It just happened. You know, I'm like, I'm looking for black teachers. I can't find any black teachers. And all of a sudden somebody's like, I know some reach out to this person. And then I would be doing an interview and they would say, I'm a, I'm a teacher. And I'm like, you're a black teacher. I need to like get you in my movie. Like, so it was just, it just kind of came together, you know, um, the way that it was meant to. And, um, I just, I feel really blessed and fortunate that I was able to go through that process and, and learn myself and grow myself. And it was therapeutic. I was able to have conversations with young women um, who were mirroring my exact experience that I would had had 20 something years before. Um, I had, you know, um, women in their seventies from all over, you know, saying I'm crying right now because I've been carrying this (laughs) experience on my shoulders my whole life and have never thought I was the only one, you know? So, you know, that's a lot when you hear that it's, you're, you're taking on, right. All of this. And it's a lot of responsibility. Um, but at the same time, I felt really, I, I felt, you know, there's something here, um, that's going to lead to other things. Um, that is, is I'm understanding what my purpose is, right. And being here. And so at the same time, I'm able to share my story and, And it's not just my story. It's many people's stories. And you don't have to be a Black girl to understand, you know, um, the struggles around identity and fitting in and, you know, um, being part of something bigger. 
that's what I was going to ask you um, for for I'll, I'll definitely add a link to the the documentary in the in the podcast show notes. Um, but for people who haven't watched it yet, um, what were kind of like the main themes or, or messages that you wanted people to take away from from the documentary and your story in particular? You know, honestly, when I started the film, I really was just talking about the things that I was um, struggling with. And so which was. Um, you know, being, what is it like being the only one in the classroom and you're talking about slavery and everybody looks at you or you're talking about, um, you know, Dr. King and Rosa Parks and everybody just looks at you like you knew them. And, you know, you, you have something, you know, you're not like you're, you know, more than they do just because you're black. Right. Um, dating, not, not dating and nobody asking you to the dances and you're constantly going with your friends every single, so that, that social piece of relationships, right. You, you don't, a lot of black girls don't get, um, we talk about hair, right. Just how our hair itself is its own, um, thing and how, um, it can be, um, you know, people can judge you based off of it or, um, and don't understand it. And at the same time, say that they are a, a believer or a Christian and you're like this and you you don't like me because of how my hair looks, right? My hair, God made my hair and it grows out of my head, just like yours does. It just looks a little different, right? So, um, but as, as, you know, I, the, getting the film out there and I start watching the film with other people, um, you know, these themes around um, identity um, were huge, right? Because that's that piece of like, you know, um, being the only one and being isolated, feeling so isolated a lot of times. And then on top of that, you still, you're a teenager, right? And all of us who, you know, we've all been teenagers once. It's not, it's not easy, right? You're, you're developing or, you know, and then on top of that, you have, you're going through this identity crisis, which I think we all go through, but then you're also going through this unique experience that everybody else around you is not experiencing. So it just adds this more, um, all of these, you know, layers. Um, but I think really the themes around, again, like I said, you don't have to be a black girl to understand the struggles around finding yourself and fitting in. Where do I fit? Um, so that, that to me is the universal, um, theme of the film. I'm not surprised that you, um, you got the feedback and the reactions that you got because um, there is so many universal uh, messages that anybody can connect to, regardless of your your gender or your or your race. Um, and I'm curious because it sounded like what sparked this was your daughter's experience. So tell talk about kind of conversations that you had in the process or, or uh, uh, of of making this film with your daughter. How did that? How did this film help respond to your daughter's initial question about you know why am I the only brown girl in my school that doesn't speak Spanish. And I remember one of the scenes I'm braiding Jayla's hair, which we would do. And I thought, well, you know, we have to, I wanted to have a scene where, you know, you could see us having a conversation about, you know, whatever it is. And I remember I was like, well, I have to braid their hair. So let's just kill two birds with one stone. I'll braid their hair and we'll be talking at the same time. Um, and so one of the conversations and I don't, this, scene isn't in the movie, but we're, um, I was talking to Jayla about, you know, the first time that I felt different, um, and that, you know, that I noticed that my color was an issue, um, for, for people in the third grade after a little boy, um, we were standing in line and, uh, you know, the teacher was kind of taking kids one by one up to the water fountain and the little boy behind me, I went up, took a drink. He would not move. He wouldn't go take a drink. And he told the teacher he didn't want my color to rub off on him. And I remember thinking, well, dang, I didn't know I could do that. Um, but I also, I, it was like the first time that I was like, but you're acting like that's, you know, like, what is, what, I don't understand. What does that mean? And so um, I remember I said to Jayla, I was like, like, what would you, like, what would you do in that situation or what, you know? And Jayla was like, well, like, well, really, mommy, but like, like, so what? Like, so what if his skin turns the same color as yours? Like, what's the big deal? And I was like, yeah, 
and this was her at like eight years old, right? She, well, what's wrong with that? Well, so what if it did? Like, what's the, what, I don't understand why he would be so upset about it. And as a grown adult, I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> of course, you're right. Of course. You know, and she was like, but yeah, like, that's just crazy. I don't understand why he would be so upset, even if it, it's not obviously, but like, if it did, so what, like, why would he so mad about it? Um, you know, and just like, you know, and she kind of, there's, you know, the scene in the movie where she kind of talks about this girl who said her hair was different and, you know, what would you say to her now? And, you know, well, my hair is beautiful. Like, so getting to have those moments, you know, um, with them and them getting to, you know, talk about their experiences openly. And then, you know, they would come to me and uh, come with me on different shoots to do interviews. So they got to hear and listen to different perspectives. And um, after the film came out and I was screening the film around town, they would come to screenings and listen to a lot of the conversation. So my kids now they're um, 18 and mm. almost 21. They're in college. Um, and they are just, you know, they can have conversations with anybody, you know, and they are very, you know, confident in themselves as black, young black women. And, um, and that I think is partially, you know, partially due to them, what they experienced with this film. Um, and, you know, again, normalizing that, um, normalizing the conversations. Um, and, you know, they do have a, they they have had this experience. Um, they've grown up and have gone to you know PWIs, predominantly white institutions, and they've we we talk and they've known they've know how to navigate. They know how to show up in spaces. They could live anywhere and you know um, work anywhere and talk to anybody. And um, they understand you know all of the things code switching. Um, and not to say that it's easy and it, they they're perfect and they don't struggle. Absolutely, they do. Um, and we've had those conversations too. Like what, you know, how do you navigate? Cause you're, you're a black woman in America, so it ain't going to get any easier. Right. So how do we navigate, you know, um, how do we self-care? How do we take care of ourselves when these things are happening? Um, so I'm just, I'm looking at them now as young adults, um, and how they're adulting, um, and just who they are. Um, I'm, I'm a really proud, you know, mom and, um, but I think this experience with the film with Black Girl in Suburbia um, also, you know, showed them that they aren't, which which was my whole goal in the first place. You are not alone, right? Like, it's not just you. And it, and it sounds like um, this, uh, you, you know, your, your daughter sparked the creation of this documentary. And then it sounds like this documentary sparked kind of your uh, future career trajectory um as you kind of transitioned to um or entered you know the the world of uh of equity and inclusion and diversity um so maybe if we could um switch gears here to talk about how you fell into doing that work specifically in a faith-based setting and specifically in catholic educational institutions because before before uh central catholic you were also working at jesuit so yeah like talk about how you uh, you know, stumbled upon these roles. You know, I, I had to, you know, I had to take this film and start conversations. That's all I kept hearing, right? From God, my spirit was like, you need to go talk. You're good at talking, go talk. And so um, I was getting, you know, probably for a few years, I was just screening the film constantly in different educational institutions, um, corporate, um, you know, traveling to, I went to Spelman and was part of a, a conference at Spelman where I showed it there, um, you know, across the country, you know, all over and had some amazing conversations. Um, and being in Oregon and the conversations um, that I was having here in Oregon and the makeup of the audiences that were coming to my screenings, which were predominantly white, uh, I realized like, okay, we, we, there's a lot of work to be yes. <laughs> done in these spaces around race specifically. Um, Cause there's a lot of white folks that are just clueless. Right. And I would get like comments of like, oh yeah, you know, this reminds me 
of this kid, Johnny. He was the only black kid in our whole entire school. And I, I always felt so bad for him. And after seeing your film, now I get like what a little bit of what he must have experienced, but still this real naive lens though, not really, you know, just, I feel bad for him. I felt, you know, and I'm like, you know, this, honestly, it's not about him. This is about you, (laughs) like your, your lens. Um, but uh, so those were the kind of we're just just these really, you know, from superficial kind of conversations and people not wanting to go super deep to um, really deep, um, interesting um, comments. Uh, I had one woman. um we, my mom had come to one of my screenings. It was her first screening that she had come to. And we were leaving and we got in the elevator and we were going down um, to the car in the garage and the doors opened. And there was an older white woman on the other side of the doors. And she looked at us and we looked at her and she started to cry and she started shaking. And I thought, I was like, hi okay we're just I I was thinking oh she sees two black women on the elevator and she's freaking out and I was like everything's okay we're just gonna get off the elevator you can get on and we can just be on you know go about our merry way so don't don't worry lady like we're not gonna rob you you know um and we we got off the elevator and she's still standing there and she's shaking and she's crying and 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 I just I'm not quite sure what to say or do you know and she said you, you just showed your film. And I said, Oh yeah, I did. Yes. I just, yes, I did. <laughs> and, um, and she said, I just, I just have to tell you, like, I've just been carrying this weight on my shoulders for my whole life. And she said, I'm afraid of black people. And my mom and I looked at each other and neither one of us have ever not had anything to say, but at that moment, we were just like, what? Like, because of course you are. Yes, you are. Thank you for admitting it. You know, it was, oh my God, this white lady just admitted she's afraid of black people. We already knew that. But the fact that she admitted it was like, oh, this is so crazy. Like, when, when does this ever happen? You know, of a white person admitting their fear and their bias, you know, and their racism. Um. So those kind of, you know, moments that like are just really powerful and um, were happening and it just, it kept lighting more of a fire in me that these conversations were so needed. And then those conversations leading to, um, you know, equity work and inclusion work and diversity work and you know, all of these things. And really what I was doing over a period of time, you know, was around education and and educating. Um, And so I tell people, you know, I um, really created a career off of my life experiences. Um, And that, and and around my, my, you know, uh, gifts of being able to, you know, again, building relationships and building community and, um, you know, being able to spark conversation and hold and facilitate conversations. And I realized that that, that was something that I loved to do. And, and I was, I felt that I was pretty good at it. And people were always coming to, to talk to me. And, um, so that then led me to this position at Jesuit high school, um, as the diversity director, um, which I, you know, had not worked um, in a high school before. And, you know, in this role, uh, this, um, you know, with this specific title, even though I had been doing, you know, the work. And so I was, you know, nervous, but also super excited. And And had you ever worked for a a Catholic institution? Well, no, and I'm not Catholic. So that was the Right. I was like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I'm super excited about it, but I have no idea, you know. Um, but also 
you know, then I got to understand that, you know, the Jesuits are social justice driven, right? And so that to me was like, great, awesome, let's do this. We we got a lot of work to do. Let's, you know, let's get to it. And so um, for those six years that I was there, um, being able to create some programming that supported students of color, um, LGBTQ students, you know, students that we would consider to be in the margins um, was really special uh, for me and being able to just um, get to know young people, you know? Um, I think for me, there it's such a gift to be around youth, um, as my mom would say, like, because, and especially these days, uh, there's, there's so much for them to not be joyful about or to want to, to aspire to be anything because the world right now is just so heavy, you know, but they're just, they're resilient. And then if you, if you can be that person that is, you know, helping them navigate some of these struggles and, um, they just, you know, it's like a, you see them like, yeah, I want to change that. And I want to do something about that. And I want to have this conversation. And it's like, yes, let's do it. Let's, 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 how are we going to do it? Let's, you know, let's make. Um, and so from, you know, Jesuit to now central, that for me has been just um, a really, again, a great blessing because these, these kids inspire me every single day of like, you know, what are we doing today, Masari? What, how are we going to, you know, what are we working on? What's what's going on? And I just, um, yeah, I eat that. I eat it all up. Well, the question that's coming up to me and, and really kind of a memory, I think back to my own time in high school, right? And in Tualatin, right? So, again, super white, um, monolingual, monocultural place. Um, and, you know, in, in, in those days when 2000, I graduated in 2008, I mean, I don't ever, I don't think we definitely didn't have a director of equity in our school. Um, and I don't ever remember hearing of other schools having them. Right. Um, and so it seems like from my kind of point of view that um, these younger generations have been formed like from very early ages in about conversations of equity and social justice. Like it's just become more, more normal, more commonplace, you know? Um, and, and so I, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is like, what does, what do those conversations look like in a, in a faith-based setting, um, uh, in a Catholic institutions versus like a public school institution, you know, are there differences? Like what are the commonalities and, and like, and for you, like, how do you kind of leverage the, the faith, the spiritual aspect, right. Um, to, to deepen and further these, these, these conversations about justice and equity. It's I'm, it's a work in progress, you know. It's not it's not super simple. I think the biggest thing that both Jesuit and Central have in other Catholic schools is their mission mission based, mission driven, right? And in their mission, there are there are elements of that are specific to social justice and the human dignity of each person, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is that's that's what you need, right? Um, and so, and then you know, informing, you know, what were the things that, you know, um, who, who was Jesus to you, right? Who, who Jesus was everybody's friend. He, he was walking with people that other people weren't trying to even be looking at, you know? Um, so just like, you know, bringing in those elements, but I, I'm always, because I'm not Catholic, right. And I'm still learning what that, right. um, what that means for me being a professional, you know, at an institution. But um, I think that uh, I, I always go off of what is your mission? What's your vision? What is your, what do you say? Who do you say you are? And how are we, what are the things that we're doing to, to walk the walk and not just talk the talk? Cause Jesus wasn't mm. just talking the talk. Right. So what are we doing? I, I always start there when I'm working with an organization, I'm like, what is your mission? You don't have a mission. Well, we we need is some paper because we can't start anything if you don't even know where you're going and who you are, you know. And so that to me, that piece is where I I find I can hold there's some accountability and not me holding anybody accountable. But if you have a mission statement that's out there to the world and you're not following any of that and there's no receipts, right, that you're holding to your mission anywhere, then that's 
that's problematic. You're, you know, the, it's not, not going to move if you're not holding to what you say you're, you're about, you know? Um, so for me, that's how I've, I've sort of navigated these, these places, um, is like, let's go back to see what, right. what do, who do we say we are? What do we say we do? You know, and are we do what, what parts of these do, do we still really need to work on? Um, and what parts are we doing well and what parts can we, um, you know, what other parts are we missing? Um, and so I always, that's kind of my, you know, let's start with the mission of, of this place. And from, from your time in these, uh, educational institutions, what would you say are the main like topics or issues that are at the forefront of, of youth, um, in that you're working with, like the, the things that they're most concerned about or the challenges that the, the, that they're most facing in their, in their lives as, as young people in, in this time. Um, I think in these, uh, um, many Catholic institutions, not all many Catholic institutions that are predominantly white, um, there's, you're always going to have students of color that are struggling, right? Um, again, Mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, all of the things that teenagers struggle with. And then on top of navigating being one of very few, um, in their environment or in their classroom. Um, I think, um, right now, all of our students are just struggling, um, socially, emotionally, um, mental health is a huge issue right now. I think, you know, obviously the pandemic we're, we're, we're not, out of the pandemic, I think as much as people want to say that we are, um, COVID is still a thing. Um, uh, and we also lost like two to three years. Right. And so there's this, this gap that we now are starting to kind of see the consequences of that. Um, and I think we'll continue to see that. I also think it disrupted a lot of systems. It brought to the table, how many holes and blind spots our system has and how archaic a lot of our our systems are in the educational system. And so um, I'm excited to be at Central because I feel um, Central is a is a place that is, is looking at those things, right? Um, and actually really trying to tackle um, some of these, these areas um, where, you know, the easy thing is just to, pick up right where we left off, right? Like, oh, we were on online for two years and and we're going to get everybody back on campus and we're going to keep it moving, you know, and try to get back to normal. And I'm like, there is no more normal. <laughs> like we, that there, we can't go back to what it was. We just can't. There's, it's just, there's, our kids are different. We're different, you know? Um, it changed all of us. And it's, so we're in this really funky new space in history and in time right now where I think we all are just trying to figure out this new place, right? The new reality. As 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 Pope Francis Pope Francis wrote a book in during the pandemic where he talks about um in any crisis, uh you don't go return to normality. You either um a, come out of that crisis worse or you come out of it better. Yeah. You know? But you don't come back come out of it the same. You know, no, the, the same would be getting worse, you know? Yeah, totally. And I, I feel sometimes there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, and not just Catholic, but a lot of big institutions that, that want to want to go back to normal, right? Because it's easier to just pretend or to act like, you know, nothing's changed and we can keep, but the people have changed. And so and if we're part of that system and you're trying to fit it back into what it was, it just is not sustainable and it is not going to work. Right. But change is hard. Change is, you know, not for everybody. Change ain't easy. Um, and not everybody's going to make the journey. I always, you know, say not everybody's going to make it. And that has to, that's okay. You know, mm-hmm. it's okay that everybody's going to make it. Um, but we have to be willing to you know, do what we need to do for the better of our, the betterment of our community. Um, even if it means not doing the same thing that we are because of just because of tradition. Well, traditionally, this is what we've done. Right. Well, that no longer is effective based off of what we're seeing and how people are showing up that no longer is working. So what are we going to do that's different, you know, 
Um, and are you seeing so, any signs of, of, of hope and signs of uh, like those positive changes, like from like kind of the work that you're in right now, are, are you seeing any of those things like, okay, you know what, like we might be moving in this, in a new direction and, and people are starting to get it. Yeah. I think, you know, um, at central, we're a very relational community. Um, we're big on community and relationships and, you know, um, building each other up. And so, um, and we're big on student feedback. Um, we can't grow unless we know what our students are experiencing and where they are. If we can't, we need to ask them, where are you? What do you need help with? How can I, as an educator, better support you? You know, um, we have to ask those questions. And as educators, we have to be willing to, you know, put in more effort and, and, um, be willing to, um, we have to be humble. That's, that's what I want to say, right? Like we have as educators, even though we're the adults in the room, we also have to understand that we don't know all, we don't know everything, right? Um, that there's stuff that we can learn from, from our students and, um, being able to receive feedback, right? Especially mm -hmm. not just from colleagues, which is one of the things that we, we've worked on, we are working on, right? And, um, having our, our faculty, you know, rotate and go observe classrooms um, so that we can offer feedback. Here's what I, oh, I, you know, actually, that's a great point. I didn't, I didn't see that, or I didn't, you know, um, I hadn't looked at it that way before, right? Um, and then asking our students, you know, again, um, was this test helpful for you? And what were some things, why do you think you missed this question? And what, you know, how can we create a better, um, uh, you know, environment in our classroom um, that is inclusive and supports everybody in here. Um, so, you know, again, and then creating spaces for our students. We have our affinity groups, so BSU and LSU and our Women's Co and uh, Women in Sports and all of these affinity group spaces for our kids. We have, um, we've created affinity groups for our faculty. We have a, a white collaborator faculty um, and a BIPOC collaborator collaborator, um, faculty affinity group. Um, and those spaces have, um, been great for us to just continue our own education, um, around race and around whiteness, um, support for our BIPOC staff, um, which not a lot of places, um, have, have those. When you say support for our BIPOC staff, what does that, what does that mean? Or what does that look like? So we have our, our faculty affinity group. So we have our white collaborator faculty affinity group and we have our BIPOC faculty uh, faculty affinity group. So, and, you know, in our BIPOC faculty spaces and we have, we have, I want to say about 20, maybe almost 30 BIPOC staff at Central, um, which is a lot. Um, 17 are uh, Black faculty and staff and range from, you know, in the classroom to administrative um, level, um, which, you know, that shifts how we move. Again, as I said, we are very much about building relationships and, and having a relationship with each other. And so, um, and it's, and not being transactional, right? Um, and so that for me, um, in my role at Central um, has been really um, life-changing and just how I show up and being able to show up as I am as a Black woman and being able to see representation other Black people, multiple Black people um, and other folks of color has been a huge um, impact um, on me and inspiring for myself um, and wanting me and inspires me more to work harder and to um, to create, uh, you know, spaces for our folks on campus and to normalize conversations. Like, you know, you can have a conversation with really almost anyone at our school about race, um, let's say specifically race and, and actually have like an actual conversation. I think where folks are not jumping ship or trying to leave the room right away. Right. Um, but actually having a dialogue. Um, and that's something I have not experienced before, you know, in working in, you know, in anywhere that I've, I've worked in my life. And so, 
Um, just, but just being able to have a, a space where everybody is at least in this agreement that we need to, we need to move differently. And if we, if we are about yeah. our mission, we need to, we gotta, we gotta walk the walk. We can't, we can't say we're about this and not do it. Right. We can't say we want to hire more, more, uh, racially diverse staff and say it and say it and say it. We got to do it. <laughs> to kind of begin to wrap up, you know, we started with your your personal experience, specifically, you know, um, these conversations that you started with your daughters, you know, and, and a lot of what I'm hearing from your story um, goes back to, like you said, relationships and community, but especially family. Right. Um, and so, you know, you said your your daughters are young adults now, you know, and if if they choose to have children down the line and you have grandchildren, what are the kind of stories that you hope to tell to them or, or what are the kind of, what is, what, what does their childhood look like, you know, and how do you hope it to be different and better for, for them, you know, versus how it was for, for maybe you and your, and your mother and the people before that have come before you, you know, my hope for, you know, the kids that, that I work with every day, my hope for the, our seniors that are going to be in the world in less than a, in less than you know, six months, um, is, you know, I share with people, I, I don't have any intention of changing the world. Right. I, I don't have that kind of power. Um, you know, my husband says a lot, you can only control what you can control. So my, my contribution is that I have a community and I every day try my best to, um, you know, create change within my community. And that's my family, my school, my friends, like the people that I am around, if they're like, I'm a, I'm a seed planter, I plant seeds. That's, you know, and the hope is that those seeds will, will grow. And, you know, these, these students that I'm working with my own children, that the seeds that have been planted will, as they get older and they go off and they into their careers and they create their own families, um, that what they, what has been implanted is they are also planting seeds, right? They are taking those seeds and they're planting those seeds in their community. And that for me is how change happens. And it, it's not an overnight thing. This is a, a marathon, right? Um, and, you know, I think as I, I get older, that becomes more and more true that, and, you know, in the beginning, you're like, we need to get this done and we need, it needs to be now and da, da, da. But I see now this, like, this is a, it's a, it's a slow burn, you know, and sometimes it's, and that's frustrating, right? Um, that's the hard part. And I, I'll say to students, you know, who are, um, you know, sophomores or juniors who are struggling and I'm like, listen, you know, I, I, this isn't going to happen. Nothing's going to be different. Nothing's going to change. And I'm like, you're planting seeds right now. You're planting seeds for those students that are coming up behind you. You may not see it right now. You may not see it next year, but if you come back in like five years and this program is still here because you started it, like that's, that's change. That's a thing, you know? Um, and no, is it affecting the entire world at the moment? No, but you have contributed to somebody that's come up behind you to go out and also do something great. Right. So, and that's not, you know, um, and, and I'm okay with that. Right. Like <laughs> that's where I, that's where I can, I have peace where I'm not, I may not see the fruits of my labor tomorrow or in like two years, but I know that something great will come down the road, right? I know I'm putting in the work right now for those to come. And, um, and I, as I, like I said, I see it every day with these kids at the, 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 I have the pleasure to see it. Um, and to watch my own children and to watch my, 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 my godchildren and my, you know, my friends, children, my community, right. I get to see my community grow and I get to see, you know, um, I get to see what's coming in and who's going out and what they're doing. And it's, it's pretty, um, I get to be in a place right now in my life where I can enjoy, I get to enjoy that um, and be at peace with that. So. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for being generous with your time and 
um, sharing your personal and professional experiences that have a lot to teach us. Um, and like I said, I relate a lot to your story. So I'm always just happy to uh, meet with a, a, another person that um, has had a parallel life um, and reminds me, right, that I'm not alone. Right. And, to you know, and you are you're not alone and your daughter's not alone and other people um, who have had similar experiences as us are not alone. So it's all about community and remem remembering that we're in this together and together we can have a greater impact, though that impact we might not see in our lifetime. And we have to be OK with that. So what new insights can we gain about Melissa's story by applying the principles of our Catholic social teaching? Well, let's start with the principle of life and human dignity of every person. Her story reminds us that every person, regardless of skin color, is precious and beautiful. We're all made in the image and likeness of God. And though it seems silly to have to point this out at this point in life and society, that includes black, brown, and the full range of skin hues we find in humanity. As such, we are all irreducibly valuable and worthy of respect. Put differently, every skin hue variety is valuable, beautiful, and worthy of celebration. Racial and ethnic diversity is a manifestation of God's infinite creativity and beauty. As Melissa's daughter says, so what if her dark skin rubbed off on someone? In other words, why do some people still see it as a bad thing to be of a darker skin tone? You know, I see this in my own cultural community with babies, for example, uh, this song, very popular song in in, uh, in Spanish comes to mind that you almost always hear at parties. It's called uh, Capullo y Sorrullo by Sonora Dinamita. Uh, it's got a really good rhythm, so it's really nice to dance to. But if you listen carefully to the word, it speaks about the story of a couple with nine kids, nine of which are blonde and light skinned. And the final, the ninth one is dark skinned. And the entire song basically consists of the father questioning whether or not the dark-skinned child is really his. And this is just not some kind of fictitious scenario that this song made up. It's based on reality. You hear this in when in family gatherings with babies, you know, some people kind of just say in a more celebratory tone, wow, like how light-skinned your, your baby is. Um, whereas if, if there's another baby and it's, and that baby is a little bit darker skin, there's almost just like, oh, pobrecito kind of tone, um, too bad for you, right? Or too bad for her that, um, she turned out a little bit darker than her cousin, for example. Melissa's story also connects to the principle of family, community, and participation. In the interview, you hear her say the importance of relationships over and over and over again. Relationships with her daughters, relationships with her students, relationships with her fellow colleagues at school, relationships with all the members that make up her community. She wants to make sure that everybody is included and that everybody has a means to participate in building up the community. The range of affinity groups she helps start and coordinate gives people the space to be heard and seen. When she said that the makeup of her community requires her school to move and be different, she's mirroring what the U.S. bishops said in their document, Communities of Salt and Light, where they said, quote, respecting and responding to the cultural and ethnic diversity of the communities we serve is an expression of justice, recognizing the contributions and welcoming the participation of all members of the parish Whatever the race, gender, ethnic background, nationality, or disability, these are integral elements of parishes seeking justice, end quote. Lastly, applying the principle of solidarity, Melissa's story teaches us that it's not enough to feel sorry or pity toward black and other people of color in predominantly white communities and institutions. As St. John Paul II said in his encyclical on social concern, Solidarity is not a feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many people, both near and far. On the contrary, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good, 
that is to say, to the good of all and of each individual, because we are all really responsible for all. We must make a concrete commitment to do that deep internal work first in ourselves. We have to be actively anti-racist, which means identifying, opposing racism in all its forms, especially in my own life. It involves taking direct and concrete actions to eliminate racism at the personal, individual, institutional, and structural level. If and when we do this, then we're truly living in solidarity with all people, regardless of skin color and race. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Reclaiming Social Justice. If you like the content, don't forget to share it and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for me, you can reach me at reclaimingsj at gmail.com. You can let me know what you thought about this episode specifically or what you think about the podcast in general by filling out the short feedback form at the bottom of this show notes. Again, my name is Danny. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see you next time for another episode of Reclaiming Social Justice.